This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone. Uh, it's really good to have you all here. Have you managed to grab your Bible as well as your pen and your notes? That would be really good if you could. Uh, you can hear me okay? Put out your thumbs if you can hear me. Yep. Okay, great. Let me open with a word of prayer. Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we truly want to thank you for your word that encourages us. We thank you that you're God who speaks, and we pray for ourselves <clears throat> that we will be a people who listen. And today's word is so full of meaning and depth, and uh, we just pray that it will really hit us as it really should. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, right now we're going to do a poll, okay? So uh, let me just quickly run this poll through you. So if you can see the poll, put out your thumbs. That'll be really helpful. Okay, so uh, which of these would you choose? Wealth or money? Uh, popularity and being well-liked or knowledge and wisdom? So, you know, just fill in whatever you feel like doing. Uh, and uh, there's no right or wrong answer, really. Just, it's just something that uh, is, we're going to use to get into the passage to help us understand it a bit more. Wow. I'll end the poll now, show you the results. Okay, so that's great that most of you have chosen uh, knowledge and wisdom. And I guess it's really a function of uh, the times that we live in, as well as the fact that we are Christian. Uh, because really in the world that we live in with this COVID-19 coronavirus, having lots of money while you're stuck at home, or having lots of money and being sick isn't really going to help you very much. Being popular well, like, again, that doesn't really help when you're stuck at home. And, you know, popularity and being well-liked kind of comes and goes, right? But knowledge and wisdom, these are the two things that really come for us today. Because if you look at governments, a lot of governments around the world, they need to respond with knowledge and wisdom. Uh, what's going to get us out of this crisis is knowledge and wisdom. Because, you know, you need knowledge and wisdom to either find a cure or a vaccine for this coronavirus. Now, today's passage, we look at Jesus. And he's just not going to do any miracles, you know, he's not going to walk on water. He's just going to have lots of conversations. But within those conversations are full of the depths of knowledge and wisdom. And they teach us so much today. And they speak much, much more of just coronavirus. It talks about the nature of men and women, our identity. It talks about the nature of God. It talks about the nature of Jesus. And these provide the foundation for our faith and our hope moving forward. So right at the very beginning, Jesus has a conversation with a group of people, the Pharisees, as well as the Herodians. Uh, the Pharisees, these were the religious leaders of the day. They were the religious power. The Herodians, these were part of the party which were aligned to King Herod. So they were the political power of the day. And as we look at the Bible, if you all recall, Back in chapter 3, we can actually see that uh, the Herodians and the Pharisees had increased in their hostility to Jesus because of Jesus' ministry. So as you come to chapter 3, if you recall way, way back then, it was actually a culmination of disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees over various things like fasting, Sabbath-keeping, all sorts of things, healing on the Sabbath. And by the end of it, uh, you could see that uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians were out to kill Jesus. So in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, 
the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were out there trying to kill Jesus. But as we look in today's passage, uh, they actually wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to maneuver him into a situation where he would be in trouble. So they asked this very simple question. Should we pay taxes to the Romans? Yes or no? Now, on the face of it, we kind of like think to ourselves, what's so controversial about that, right? I mean, like we pay taxes all the time. Uh, You know, if, if someone were to ask me as a pastor, should we pay taxes to the Singapore government? Of course, I would say yes. But you see, in those days, paying taxes to the Romans was a very painful, very emotive subject. So if, uh, if you ever come to my place, uh, you can actually see that around the corner from my house, there is this place called the former Ford factory. Okay, so actually around the corner there is where Brian and Hui Sing live, okay? And I sort of live around the corner. Now, the former Ford factory is kind of like a very bland, generic name. Okay, so it's the place where there was a Ford factory and uh, it was the place where the British surrendered to the Japanese. Okay, so, you know, inside, there's actually the room where the British surrendered to the Japanese. But many years ago, uh, they wanted to change the name of this former Ford factory to the Sayonan Gallery. But this word, Sayonan, brought up a lot of negative, painful memories for people because it was the name the Japanese named Singapore during the occupation, which means light of the South. So because they wanted to change the name to Sayonan Gallery, many people wrote into the newspaper, uh, petitioned the MPs, wrote to the government, so much so that they changed the name back from Sayonan Gallery back to the former Ford factory. Now, for the people living uh, under Roman occupation in Jewish time, when Jesus was there, uh, it was like that. But it wasn't the word Sayonan that would have evoked strong emotions among people, but rather, uh, whenever the people brought out their wallets and they took out their money, they would be full of negative emotions because the coin was not a Jewish coin, but it was a, a Roman coin. But what made it worse were the pictures and the inscriptions on the coin. If you have ever seen a 50 cent coin in a Singapore uh, coin, you, you probably never notice uh, what's on it, right? But on one side was a very bland picture of a shipyard and on the other side was the picture of the Singapore flag. Like, it's like, okay, not very offensive. But actually for the denarius, which was the coin that was, uh, was used regularly in uh, Jewish society, this was what was on the front. And on the back. So can you see that on the screen? So on one side was the picture of Caesar. And on the other side of the coin was the picture of this woman who we will get to in a moment. Now that in itself wasn't really offensive, but it was the words. Okay. So on the sides of surrounding the picture were these words, which was uh, T-I Caesar D-V-I a V F A V G V S T V S. Okay, I mean they're just words, right? But actually, they mean something. And what they mean is Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the 
divine Augustus. So he was saying that Caesar's father was divine. So by implication, he was divine as well. So that would be so offensive, right? If you were a God-believing Jew, because you're using a coin where on one side is the inscription of your, I guess, your uh, occupying ruler who claims to be a God. But on the other side of the coin was a picture of a woman, a lady. And this lady was Pax, which in Latin means peace. And really, she was a depiction of the Roman goddess of peace. Uh, so I guess we, we won't know. Uh, do you all know where this place is? This is uh, Buckingham Palace in uh, England, right? So who knows when we will ever go back to England again, right? To fly or whatever, or be tourists. But if you ever go back to uh, England and London, if you go to Buckingham Palace, you'll notice that around this statue are these four small little statues, okay? Four small little statues. And one of them is this lady who is Pax. She is the goddess of peace, okay? So you can imagine how offensive it would be for the Romans, both politically and religiously, to be using this coin, which was like semi-idolatrous. On one side was the picture of Caesar, who claimed to be divine. On the other side was a picture of the goddess. So that's why this question that Jesus was being asked was so controversial, right? It was so filled with emotion because if Jesus says, yes, we should pay uh, the tax, then implicitly he's like endorsing uh, the Roman occupier. But on, on top of that, he's kind of like endorsing uh, Caesar, who's claiming to be God, semi-divine. And, 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 and on the other side of the equation, if he says, no, no, let's not pay taxes to the Romans, then that would be a really good reason for the Pharisees and the Herodians to say to, to the Roman authorities, hey, this guy is guilty of treason. We should arrest him. So Jesus is faced with a lose-lose situation. And that's why this question is such a great trap. Now, what does Jesus say then in response to this? Well, let's see what Jesus says. So Romans 12, Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. Now, this is such a deep and profound message, right? Because he's saying the coin, okay, the coin has the picture of Caesar. So give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Obviously, if the picture of the coin is Caesar, then give back to Caesar what he deserves, which is tax, authority, civil obligation. Now, of course, Jesus could have ended there. He already answered the question. But as we notice, as we keep going on, right, he always adds on more stuff to the question that he's being asked. And then he goes on to say, and to God, what is God's? Now, what does that mean, right? Because <clears throat> if you look at the, the coin, well, that's very clear, right? The picture of Caesar is on the coin. The picture of Caesar is imprinted on the coin. But where is God's image imprinted? Where do we see God's image? Well, when I close this slide <clears throat> and you look at the gallery view, of your Zoom, each of those people in the gallery Zoom have the imprint of God. They are made in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, it actually says 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that really blows your mind, right? Uh, because what Jesus is saying, yes, we have a responsibility back to civil authority, to Rome and to Caesar. But there is a much greater authority to whom we bow, to a greater obligation to whom we owe, and that is God. Because we are made in the image of God in ourselves. Now, when you think about that, that is really mind-blowing because it shows us the nature of humanity, the nature of men and women. We are made in the image of God. We are made in relationship with God. We have obligation to God. Now, I think that in the world that we live in, um, you can see that uh, because we bear the image of God and give to God what is His, then God is actually calling upon us to give all of our lives. So that's the first important principle. But I think that there is a vast and a more profound implication. So we live in a world which believes in evolutionary Darwinianism. Now, evolutionary Darwinianism as a theory is part of science. But many people today view it almost as a religion in and of itself. They say because of evolutionary Darwinianism, therefore, all creation, including human beings, are accidents. We are just chance molecules coming together which create life. But if that's the case, then what is my identity? Where do I find meaning? I'm lost. There is no meaning because I'm an accident. But not only am I lost, but I'm lonely because I have no re real relationship with my creator and my maker. I have no relationship with other people except they too are lost in themselves. So what the Bible actually says here is a profound truth. Why do I have identity? Why do I have meaning? Why do I listen to God? It is because I'm made in His image. And that's the first truth that we learn in Jesus' interactions with these different people. So the first truth is, says here, we are men and women are made in the image of God, so we have to give God our all. All right? Now, there is a second bunch of people who come to, oh, sorry, I, I wanted to show you this uh, interesting T-shirt that I found online. So basically what this teacher is saying is, <clears throat> give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Well, what's in the T-shirt? What, what, what is it that is wearing the T-shirt? It is God's property, so to speak. So we have to give to God ourselves. That is what Jesus is saying. here. So now we meet the second group of people that Jesus bumps into, and they are the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees focus a lot on the law, right? They wanted to teach the law. They wanted to apply the law. They had many, many laws. The Sadducees' focus was on the temple. They focused a lot on the temple, the running of the temple, the focus on the temple. And they had an interesting way of reading the Bible. Uh, they believed in only the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Exodus. First five books. 
uh, they were very upper class. But that's not so important, right? Because he only believed in the first five books. So if you think about it, what, what's in the first five books of the Bible? Generally, it's about history and it's about the law, right? Those two things, history and law. So if you look at the first five books of the Bible, it's not readily apparent that there is the resurrection. Not very readily apparent that there is life after death. It's not as if you've got the Gospels, right? You see Jesus dying and rising again. It's like, you know, you look at the first five books, there's a lot of law and there's a lot of history, but they can't really see anybody being risen from the dead. So as a result, one of their core beliefs for the Sadducees was they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see. Now, that's a joke, by the way. That's why they were sad, you see. I don't, I don't see anybody laughing. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay? But because they didn't believe in the resurrection, then they came to Jesus with this question. It wasn't a question about marriage, but it was really a question to trip Jesus up. So they gave this illustration about how there was a woman who was married to this man. And according to the law, when this man died, then the law said his brother had to marry the widow. So they gave this hypothetical situation where, okay, this man, woman married the brother, the brother died, another brother married, he died, another brother married, he died, another brother married, he died, until there were seven brothers. So they came to Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, look, there was this widow and she married the seven brothers. But then in heaven, who would the widow be married to? Because obviously there were seven of the brothers. And they were like, ah, yeah, Jesus, you see, you're not so clever after all, right? They were going to trap Jesus. They were just like the Sadducees and the Herodians. And that's why Jesus' answer is so powerful. Because uh, Jesus went on to tell them that actually they were completely wrong in their understanding because as we see here, they did not know the power of God, neither did they know about their scriptures. So in verse 24 is the key. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now the, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly uh, mistaken. So what we see here uh, really is that Jesus is accusing them of two things. Okay? The first thing is you do not know the scriptures, and as a result, you do not know the power of God. So let's look first at their lack of knowledge of scripture. So Jesus is very clever here. He goes to the book of Moses in the Exodus. So Moses is supposed to have written the first five books of the Bible, right? So he goes to Exodus and he says, look, even though you look at the first five books of the Bible and there's no one resurrected from the dead, look at the most important part of your scriptures. Look at God speaking to Moses at the burning bush and calling Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. So right now, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to play for you a video, a children's video. Okay, so let's watch this now together. 
Okay, so there's going to be a poll after this, so you need to pay attention, all right? There's going to be a poll after this, just to let you know. Sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am who I am. Is Moses talking to a plant? Shh, look, the bush is on fire, but it's not burning up. Seen how my people are suffering as slaves in Egypt, and I have heard them beg for my help because of the way they are being mistreated. I feel sorry for them. Now go, for I am sending you to the Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But who am I to go to the king and lead your people out of Egypt? The Pharaoh. He's a harsh and godless man. Why would he listen to me? I will be with you, and you will know that I am the one who sent you when you worship me on this mountain after you have led my people out of Egypt. Okay, so uh, that's, that's uh, helpful. So you can see that this is the passage in which Jesus quotes. I think that as Jesus quotes this passage, He's quoting not just these exact words, but the account of what's actually happening. God speaking through the burning bush to Moses saying, bring my people out. And why bring my people out? Because of who God is as his protector and savior, as well as his promises of his relationship with his forefathers. So I want you to think a second as you do this poll, right? Which is the word uh, that is actually repeated the most in this passage. Okay, so what is the word that keeps being repeated the most in the cartoon and in that section of Exodus? Okay, so you all spend a moment having a look at that. Okay, what is the word that's repeated the most? Okay, I'll end the polling now. Okay, I'll show you the results. Okay, so most of you got it right. right. The word that keeps being repeated the most is the word I am. Now, God uses it to describe himself. I am who I am. And he uses it to describe his relationship with uh, the forefathers of Moses. So let's look first. He says, you know, I am who I am. And what he's saying is he is living, he is present, and he is powerful. Right? He, I am who I am. And therefore, because of this, go and tell, uh, Mo, uh, Moses go and tell the Pharaoh, I am who I am. I'm living, present, and powerful. And because of that, when God says that he's going to be the protector and savior of God's people, he just doesn't mean that he's going to save people from Egypt. But really, he has even greater power than that. He's going to save his people from all enemies, not just Egypt. And that's why he says to Moses, I am the God of your father, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. Because at this point in Moses' life, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all been long gone and buried in the ground. But God is saying that as he is a living God, so they are living. 
they are alive together with him. And therefore, he saves not just from Egypt, but he saves from death itself. Now, this is really important for us to know. Because for the Sadducees, they thought that God was just slightly higher than us, right? He could sort of protect from various things, but he couldn't protect from death itself. And Jesus says, no, he is a God of unlimited power. And because of that mistake of underestimating God, they also under, underestimated heaven. They thought, you know, heaven is like earth. But Jesus says, no, look, heaven is completely different from earth. It is where we will live a different plane of existence, where there is no marriage, there is only angels, and people are angels. So you can see that from the Sadducees' point of view, they underestimated God, they underestimated heaven. And Jesus says, you are badly mistaken. And I think that's so important for us today. Because I'm convinced that if we understand the unlimited greatness and power of God, then we would put more faith in God and less stock in this world. We would fear this world less. So, you know, sometimes I go to a children's church and we sing this very popular children's church song. My God is so big, right? My God is so mighty and so strong, right? But do we actually uh, believe that? Actually, I got a video of it. Do you want to see? If you if you want to see the video of the song, you can put a thumbs up. Do you want to see a video? Okay, so why don't you put a thumbs up? Okay, let's see. Let's see the song. Let's see the song. I got the video of it. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. Okay, so anyway, we don't, we don't go through the whole song. You all get the idea, right? But, but that's exactly what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees. That God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there is nothing He cannot do, including the resurrection. And that's why it's so important for us to really take this to heart. Because it shows us the nature of God. See, if we don't understand the nature of God, then we our faith in God will be very small because if he's such a small God, then why do we have faith in him at all? So the first lesson we learn is, who am I? What is our identity? We are made in the image of God. So we give God our all. But who is God? What is his nature? He's a God of unlimited power, of resurrection life, the God of the living. And so in these interactions, Jesus is like pushing the bar much further. They're asking a question, but Jesus takes a question and he uses it to expound on much deeper truths. So the passage then goes on, and actually we're going to skip a few of the, uh, the interactions because we just don't have time in the context that we have, but I hope that you do it in your Bible study. So at the end of it, really, uh, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, uh, they have no more questions for Jesus. So Jesus poses a question to them. And this is a very deep and profound question as well. So what question is it? So again, in Mark chapter 12, he says to them, right, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? So the expectation at the time was that the Christ, the Messiah, would be the son of David, meaning the great, 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 great grandson of the great King David. 
Now, this was the common belief. This is undisputed. But Jesus then asked this very deep and profound question. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, so if he speaks by the Holy Spirit, he is inspired. He's speaking God's word. This is not his opinion. This is God's word. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So Jesus then picks up on this contradiction. He says, how can he be his son? How then can he be his son? So the question here is, if the Messiah is the son of David, then how can David call his own great-great-grandson Lord? Because usually in the culture, as in Asian culture, when you are the older, the senior, you do not call your great-grandkids Lord, right? It just doesn't make sense. So if you think about it like this, right? Uh, if you see this slide here, So these are my kids, right? Joshua and Benjamin, if you don't know who they are. I mean, it doesn't matter uh, what they do in the grow. They could be the prime minister of Singapore, but I don't call them my ruler, right? My lord. Does that make sense? But how much more so David, right? Because David is already the king. He is the king. And if Jesus is the Christ, another king, then they are equivalent. How can they be? one higher than the other? How can one king be more superior than King David himself? Now, in my Bible study group, someone said, hey, how come Jesus doesn't answer the question? But I think the answer is actually in the passage itself from what we know. So Jesus in the passage quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. So the Lord here, if you look, it's capital letters. Can you see it in your slide? L-O-R-D in capital letters. L-O-R-D, capital letters, means Yahweh. Yahweh, the God, said to my Lord, my King, my Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this King, the son of King David, is a very different sort of King from King David. Because why? He sits at the right hand of God himself. He is no earthly king like King David. He is the divine, heavenly king who rules from heaven. He is a different type of king, a different nature of king altogether from our earthly kings, including King David. The passage then goes on and said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, I like this translation a lot more because, you know, it's a lot more vivid, a lot more powerful imagery. If you look at our NIV, it just says, you know, uh, put your enemies under your feet, right? It's, ah, yeah, so, so white bread, vanilla, you know, very bland, right? But make your enemies your footstool is a lot more powerful image. So what does it mean that this Christ would have his enemies as his footstool? Uh, do you know what a footstool is? Let me show you. So this is uh, what a footstool uh, looks like. Okay, so it is where you uh, put your feet. And what a powerful image that is because King David really, I mean, he was only like king of a really small country in the Middle East, right? I mean, by the Roman time, uh, this Jewish small colony was like a nothing. But Jesus 
he's going to be king over the whole world. He's going to be a, a universal king in which every enemy would be his footstool. Now, this is a picture of footstool. So imagine like all the enemies of Jesus are like his footstool. That's the picture that is being given here. Now, if that's the case, then it is such a powerful image because this king that we follow, this Christ that we follow, is not an earthly king, but a heavenly divine king. And this heavenly divine king rules universally over everyone. There is no enemy which is not his footstool. And because of that, we therefore are able to put great hope in this Christ. So what have we learned today? We've learned about the nature of humanity, of men and women. We are made in the image of God and therefore we give God our all. God is a God of unlimited power who brings resurrection life. And Jesus, his son, is the heavenly divine king who brings universal rule. And therefore, it is worthwhile to put hope in this kingdom because if you have a king and a kingdom who is divine and universal in this rule, then why wouldn't you put your hope in this kingdom? So as we come to this section of the Bible, there are no miracles, but there's lots of deep truth from the wisdom and knowledge of Jesus. Now, as we come to the very end of this passage, I want to end with another poll. So uh, I want to ask you this question. I want you to pay attention to this picture, okay? Okay, what are these three pictures? Can you recognize them? Uh, put them in your head. Think about them for a moment, okay? What are these three pictures? Okay, I'm going to do a poll, all right? Okay, you got it? Picture's going to close very soon. It's going to close now. Okay, what do you see? What is in this picture? Okay, I'm going to launch the poll now. Can you see? Okay, I'm going to close the voting very soon. You have to get your votes in. Okay, I'll end the polling now. Okay, I'll show you the results. Um, you guys are better than the first service, I think. So most of you managed to recognize the handbag. Uh, maybe you're, you're more, more in touch. Very impressive as well that most of you are able to recognize it's a Samsung, not an Apple. And the first service is like 50-50, so obviously they don't know their phones as well as you, as well as the watch. Now, why did I show you uh, this picture? I was reading this uh, news article in Bloomberg News, and uh, they were talking about this mainland Chinese lady who's a very successful executive. But during the coronavirus epidemic, uh, she found herself uh, out of work and she was stuck in quarantine in her room. So when she was very successful as a young executive, she used to spend all her money on luxury goods. She had lots and lots of uh, luxury handbags. So according to the article, uh, while she was stuck in her room one day, she brought out all her luxury handbags and laid them all on the bed together with her other luxury items. And she said to herself, what good is all this stuff? Right? What can they do for me now? How can they help me now that I have no work, now that I'm stuck in, uh, in my room, if I get COVID-19, what good is all this luxury stuff? What good is it for me? How can it help me? 
And I think that's really true. I think it's a great truth that she stumbled upon. Uh, that all these worldly things, they can't really do us any good in the environment that we're in. Uh, especially if we get COVID-19, then uh, what is the point? We can't actually use these luxury goods to enrich ourselves, to make us feel better for ourselves. But what we've learned today in the words of Jesus through his knowledge and wisdom are of ultimate good. Because what he has taught us can last us into eternity. What is our nature? Who are we? We are made in the image of God. Therefore, there is a creator. We can have a relationship with that creator. There is an obligation to that creator to give God our all. Who is God? What is his nature? He is a God of unlimited power. He is a God who can raise the dead. He is the God of the living. And therefore, it is worth following such a God because our life is not just ending here and now. He can save us from death itself. There is no obstacle, there is no trouble that this God cannot save us from. And ultimately, what is the nature of Christ? Well, Christ is a divine king. There is no enemy who will not be made into his footstool. He will have universal rule. So it is worth following this Christ. It is worth living in his kingdom. So I hope that as we've come to today's passage, we will hold on to what is really, really valuable. And today we have learned uh, what is really valuable. We've learned about ourselves, we've learned about God, and we've learned about Jesus Christ. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that you will help us uh, to hold on to what is really important, that we will hold on to you as our creator, that we will hold on to you as the God of unlimited power, the God of the living, the God who resurrects. And that we will hold on to Jesus, the Christ who is not of this world, the Christ who is not earthly, but rather rules from heaven, who is divine and is universal, and for whom all enemies will be his footstool. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.